Is this something you could live under? Or could you bear this sound? Or would you let your child play outside after hearing Ella Kadum's story? She was just five years old, having fun outside her home in a Shujaya neighborhood in Gaza. Shrapnel struck her head after an Israeli raid. This is daily life for nearly two million people in Gaza. Hey everyone, I'm Sami Zaydan and welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. Now, I want you to sit back and take in this first-hand account of what life is like in Gaza from Yara Aid. She's a journalist and human rights activist based in Gaza. Life in Gaza is exhausting. Living in the world's largest open-air prison, you know, you don't know if you're going to be alive in the next minute or so. Any minute a war could happen, any minute an aggression and bombing will be dropping all over your house. You might lose your loved ones. Living in Gaza is a mixed feelings. You love the land, you love the people around you, you have hope, but at the same time you don't know. You don't know if you're gonna wake up the next day or not. You don't know if you're gonna lose your family, your mother, your siblings. It's a mixed feelings of anxiety and not knowing what the future holds for you. We feel sad, we feel helpless, we feel hopeless. We feel desperate, we feel that if we lived and survived this aggression, we might not survive the other one. You know, we feel so tired and exhausted of this continuous cycle that does not end. We feel unheard. We want the whole world to feel our pain. We want the whole world to stand with us. It's a horrific feeling. In Gaza, we don't have electricity like the rest of the world. We have electricity for four hours a day, sometimes even less. During the aggressions, we can literally have no electricity at all. We don't have access to clean water like the rest of the world. We are, you know, most of the population here is literally under the poverty line. People are desperate, people are suffering. They're continuing to see their dreams being robbed from them. They continue seeing their their children, their people massacred. It's, it's a very difficult situation. Wow, that was a very powerful and difficult story. Now let's talk about the political side of this with our guest from Ramallah. I'm Maryam Barghouti. I'm the senior Palestine correspondent for Manda Weiss. I'm based in Ramallah. Maryam, great to have you with us. As we all know, a truce is in place in Gaza, but do you think it's going to hold? I think any truce historically that Israel has um, agreed on was meant to be broken. Uh, it goes all the way back to the Oslo Accords. On the morning of the 9th of August, the Israeli military raided Nablus in the West Bank um, after the assault of Gaza with its uh, brutal military power and airstrikes against the Islamic Jihad. But in Nablus, for example, one of the martyrs that they killed is Ibrahim Nabilsi, who's from the Fatah armed wing. And he was just 19. He was born October 13th, 2003. So I think Israel is continuously breaking ceasefire. Ceasefire just means 
the Palestinians tone it down because it's making the world uncomfortable. The Israeli narrative is he was involved or he was suspected of involvement in activities and attacks in Israel. Right. So if we want to go on the Israeli narrative as a suspect, then Israel is admitting to extrajudicial killings, which is illegal and violation of, for example, Nabilsi and three others today, including one 17-year-old in Hebron and a 16-year-old in the Nablus raid on the 9th of August. So if really we want to speak about these Palestinian armed factions carrying out uh, attacks against Israel, this is their right. This is completely the right to defy the occupying power that they grew under. Coming back to what's happening in Gaza with that truce, is there a disagreement, though, over what was actually agreed in the truce? PIJ, Palestinian Islamic Jihad officials, they say the truce includes the release within two weeks of two of their prominent figures, Khalil al-Awwada and Bassam al-Saadi. Israel says it doesn't. Right. On the 9th of August was a trial that was meant to be held for Khalil Awawde, who has been on hunger strike um, for more than five months at this point. And still, Israel refused to give any decision on the appeal or his release. And this is, he's part of a practice of being held arbitrarily by Israel under administrative detention. And this isn't just demands by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. These are demands by the Palestinian community as a whole. Um, The practice of administrative detention, extrajudicial killings, home demolitions, the arrest, torture, and abuse of children and adults alike. This is not just a ceasefire demand during the rockets being fired towards Israel. These are the demands that are embedded the single demand of freedom. And this somehow continues to evade the way the Palestinian struggle is portrayed collectively. Well, Palestinian Islamic Jihad is a smaller armed group compared to Hamas, which controls Gaza. The PIJ, as it's known, is reported to have carried out attacks inside Israel for over 40 years. It was founded in the early 1980s by Palestinian activists in Egypt. The group's aim is to create a Palestinian Islamic state within the occupied West Bank, Gaza and parts of Israel. Islamic Jihad doesn't take part in the Palestinian political process. It rather concentrates on armed resistance against Israel through its military wing, the Al-Quds Brigade. It's active in Gaza and the occupied West Bank. The group has its headquarters in Syria and also reportedly receives funds from Iran. It is designated as a terrorist group by the US, EU, Israel and the UK. So what's going to happen in two weeks if Israel does not release these two? Is the war going to start again in Gaza? Did the war ever stop in Gaza? You know, that's kind of the question that we have to ask. That's a good way of putting it, yeah. It is under siege and according to the UN it is still under occupation as well and continuously gets airstriked by Israel. If you look at the records, all the way back from March, Israel has been quote-unquote targeting um, weapons manufacturing uh, areas in Gaza, which it knows is a densely populated area under siege, which means civilians cannot evacuate, which means Israel's targeting and assassinating civilians as well. And it's such a pity It is such a pity that we continuously keep saying, do you think a war will erupt? The war never stopped. It started in 1948 and it never stopped. 
I think what we're getting to now is, for example, what UN investigators handed in on June the 7th. And they said, basically, the root cause of this conflict is the occupation, perpetual occupation. Until that is addressed, until Palestinians can live a life with the sort of freedoms that everybody else and rights that everybody else enjoys, this is probably not going to end, isn't it? I mean, the UN made similar statements in the 70s and 80s that I can pull up for you that were actually a lot more nuanced than the statements we see now. They mean nothing. Why did things escalate so quickly, though? It really was not expected this time. And I think we keep relating it also to, you know, the elections that keep happening within Israel itself and the continued use of Palestinians as pawns to rally settlers who are being increasingly armed in the West Bank. I fear that there's going to be a massacre soon at the hands of armed settlers, not just the military. But I think the intensification, if that's, you know, maybe a more accurate description, happened is because eventually if you're beaten enough times, you're going to push back. And that's the normal reaction. This has been 70 years, 15 years in Gaza, the entire generation in Jenin and Nablus and the entirety of the West Bank, as well as Palestinians with Israeli citizenship, born after 2000, has known nothing but the brute force of this military and settler population. And I think every once in a while there will be intensification. OK, of course, the Israeli narrative is that they say they had to intervene on that Friday because they had information about an imminent Palestinian Islamic Jihad attack being launched from Gaza, and they wanted to make what they call a preemptive strike. However, some UN officials have been critical of that narrative, saying such a widespread bombing campaign cannot be justified under international law. Let's listen in. This particular attack was unlawful, immoral and irresponsible because it's clear that it was going to escalate and to trigger more violence. Let's be clear here, Mariam. What we're talking about is more than 40 people killed, including 16 children, over 300 wounded, according to Gaza's health ministry. That's a very high cost of lives. Yes, but you're only talking about one year. 2022, we've witnessed killings of Palestinians, not just in Gaza, but the entirety of Palestine, and we need to keep it in the collective has been five times more than 2021, for example. If you want to speak about death toll, then include the death toll from at least 1967 or 1948. The death toll is much higher than what's being reported. But we continuously keep isolating these incidents. And what's going to happen is you're going to keep seeing these eruptions of intensified confrontations from Palestinians and the disproportionate use of force by the nuclear power that is Israel. We should also mention that there has been criticism by human rights groups in the past about Palestinian groups firing rockets towards Israeli civilian areas too, as something that can't be justified under international law too. Right. So Israel has a Gaza Strip besieged for more than 15 years, denied the entry of basic materials. At the time of the assault this year, Israel had the electricity shut down midway through the assault in Gaza. And this is after 15 years of not even having electricity on the daily. 
and you're unable as a militant group to really develop weapons, right? But Israel has the most advanced, somehow it wants to blame the militants, right? For not having advanced weapons like the Israeli military, rather than hold the Israeli military accountable that despite having such advanced weapons, somehow still manages to continuously kill Palestinian civilians and children. Why don't we discuss that? Of course, one can't make a symmetry here. There clearly is an occupation and an occupier. But clearly, any threat to civilian life is not something that international law would endorse, whether it's Palestinian or Israeli, right? Right. But these are the Israeli settlers that chased Palestinians last summer in 2021, chanting death to Arabs, and have been on a similar escalatory trend in recent months, since April up until this August. So if we really want to talk about, you know, the the Palestinian militants in terms of their targeting of Israeli civilians, you also need to place it back in the context. If Israel is so worried about its civilians, then why does it continuously bring in a settler population on Palestinian lands, knowing very well that anyone that is being repressed is going to fight back? You mentioned the role of Israeli politics. Israel is now portraying this as a victory. Is there a winning side here? The only winner is going to be whoever wins the Israeli elections. And I'm hoping that we stop looking at these moments as someone is winning or losing. It's a continuation of an ethnic cleansing. And the the fact that I have to keep echoing that is so exhausting. It's like this obsession from media researchers to policymakers with just the latest news peg or the latest quote-unquote escalation. This is daily life. On the daily, a settler shooting down a Palestinian or a military person humiliating and strip-searching children and adolescents or raiding Nablus on the daily, a city that's still to recover from the 2002 invasion. It's sick. It's so sick. Mariam, do you feel there's a double standards now, or do you feel the double standards is much clearer now that there's a war in Ukraine, there's an occupation there, when you look at how much of the Western world has responded to that occupation and how the occupation of Palestinians is viewed? I don't think it's double standard. I think it's racism, and it's showing. You know, we can now tell apart, because if you notice, the consistent criminalization of Palestinians also comes with its association of Islamism, right? The Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Hamas, which is why it was also a big deal, for example, that Ibrahim Nabilsi today belonged to, you know, a non-Islamist movement, Fatah, and yet he was also killed because he resisted. The world's Islamophobia has also been on the increase consistently. And I really think there is an inability to reconcile, and I'm speaking about the global north, namely, you know, Europe, the US, Canada. There is an inability to swallow that the quote unquote savage Arab that they talked about in their colonial writings has the right to fight back, that it just does not register in their mind. It's like, how dare you? want to fight back? How dare you not say thank you that we're bringing you this amazing democracy and civilization? It's a trend that we've seen consistently. You mentioned the daily lives of Palestinians. Let's talk a little bit more about that. A life of occupation in both the West Bank and Gaza and the life of 
living under siege, what does that mean in Gaza? What does it mean? Well, that's a question you're going to have to ask someone in Gaza. I live in Ramallah, and that's what I mean when I say divide and conquer and geopolitical fragmentation. I went to Gaza for a week in 2019 on an assignment. So for sure you're familiar with it, though, right? You can talk about what you've seen in your visits. Familiar is one thing. Being unable to rightfully capture it because I'm not living it daily is another. And I won't do a disservice to my brothers and sisters in Gaza. I should also mention we did plan to have a guest from Gaza at the top of this show to talk about that, precisely that point, for a few minutes. But unfortunately, we were not unable to connect with her. So that's why... Without asking you to do any disservice to anyone, Mariam, tell us from your experience and perspective what you've seen. It's a constant funeral. That's Gaza. It's a place where the air itself is so polluted that I couldn't breathe, for example, when I went there. I remember when I walked out of Gaza, I just took a deep breath because the air was so polluted. The water is not drinkable. It's no wonder the UN said that by 2020, Gaza will not be a livable place. We're in 2022, and several assaults has happened on the five besieged governorates since. It's a walking funeral. It's a constant burial in Gaza. That's what it is. Described as the most densely populated strip of land on Earth by some quarters. It's one of the most densely populated areas, yes. So the only way to build is upwards. But if you're constantly getting bombed, that's not an option. So it's being suffocated. It's being killed. It's been saying that for 15 years. And it's still, I cannot comprehend how it's been 15 years. Here's how the Palestinian ambassador to the UK described what's been going on. This is an illegal occupation, and the people of Palestine have the right to defend themselves, defend their children and families, have the right to resist the illegality. So having an information, then you go and you devastate an entire city that is the most condensed, the most poor, the highest unemployment on earth, that is besieged by the air and the sea and the land, and then every other month you go and bombard them because you have information. This is not international law. This is absolutely the rule of the jungle. This is thuggery. Israel is becoming the thug of the world, and it is allowed to be a thug of the world because of the blind, blatant support of the international actors, including the United States and the UK. Mariam, what do you make of the international reaction, particularly from the US and UK, which both said basically, hey, Israel has the right to defend itself? The UK is the same uh, empire where Lord Balfour signed us off to create Israel. I expect nothing more than continued complicity and, like I said, an active accomplice. The US, an inherently racist and colonial state, will continuously aid and abet Israel, not just due to, you know, Israeli lobbying efforts in the U.S., but because the U.S. has interests in maintaining and solidifying its control as a global empire. And I don't think anyone should expect anything new from them. Mariam, how much responsibility should the Palestinians carry for their own divisions, for the infighting? We even saw in this conflict Hamas basically sat this one out. I think it's also unfair to just keep expecting Palestinians to constantly have to fight every fight. 
We're under continuous assault. If it's Hamas today, it's the unarmed Palestinian youth uh, of Birzeit University tomorrow. It's the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. It's the Fatah Aqsa Brigades. It's the little kids in Beta. I think Hamas also sat this one out in terms of the Israeli narrative in line, in that it was assassinating Palestinian Islamic Jihad members. But if you look at the statements made by the brigades, for example, in the West Bank, they continuously kept looking at themselves as a unified coalition. There are still very real divisions in the Palestinian camp that doesn't help their cause in trying to end this occupation and siege. Right, you're also talking about an older generation that is kind of dying away now. And what we need to focus on is the younger generation and what they think of the idea of political factions. These Hamas, Fatah, the PFLP, these all rose at a time their generation called for it. Right now, the needs and demands of the younger Palestinian generation are very different. So I think that's also an irrelevant question unless we want to keep putting these movements on a pedestal at the expense of the broader Palestinian civil society. This is not a war between Hamas and Fatah and Hamas and Fatah and Israel. This is an ethnic cleansing happening by an Israeli colonial regime with nuclear powers against a Palestinian people. And each generation has a different context, has a different dynamic. So we really need to renew our questions to respond properly to the changes. It's a hard topic to talk about, but thank you very much for coming and sharing your perspective. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thanks to you guys, our listeners, for tuning in. This episode was produced by Khaled Sultan and sound designed by George Elwir. Our lead engagement producer is Ayal Malik and assistant engagement producer Munira Dosari. And of course, there's our executive producer, the big boss, Omar Saleh. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. 